Welcome to the San Diego News Fix, Name Drop Edition. Name Drop is all about the interesting people that shape San Diego and have been shaped by it. Our goal is to introduce you to movers and shakers, up and coming names, and to shine a light on names that you already read in the news. Tasha Williamson is definitely one of those people. Tasha is a former mayoral candidate for the city of San Diego, a well-known community activist, and just recently she founded her own nonprofit, Exhaling Injustice. She is often present at council meetings throughout San Diego County, including in the city of San Diego, National City, and Lemon Grove. She became an activist for her children while they were in school, and she now fights for women's rights, police reform, and racial justice. Here's our interview. Tasha Williamson, thank you so much for being here. Um, I, I read your name in the newspaper yesterday, the day before, um, you know, doing what you do best, standing up for people. Uh, this was in Lemon Grove, where a resident uh, used a racial slur towards the mayor, Raquel Vasquez. She is the first Black woman to be elected mayor in San Diego County. Um, you spoke up really quickly, but it sounded to me from the coverage that the council uh, did not. What was going on? Um, yes, so I came to observe because I was told that there was some kind of hostile uh, treatment that was going on um, back and forth on the diocese and also from the community uh, to the diocese. And so I came to observe because I was contacted um, by community members um, while observing um, during public comment. Uh, a community name, member named Mr. Gold got up and uh, spoke about um, the fact that I guess there was another instance where um, it was alleged that a city council member uh, used a uh, derogatory term uh, for uh, Black people um, in a closed session meeting. Uh, he said that he believed um, she didn't say it, she said she didn't say it, uh, and then he in turn uh, called the mayor a useless baboon, um, a term that was um, very, very harmful to Black people for generations, um, and I do not tolerate. Um, I don't tolerate racism very well, um, it will cause an immediate breach of peace if I am in the room uh, because it should. Uh, this is uh, 2022. This is a, a city that has been known as Mississippi of the West um, since the 60s. Um, so there have been, there's a history of racism um, that is embedded in San Diego's existence. Um, from the time when Black people's homes were burned down in La Jolla so that they were forced out um, of that area um, to lynchings and killings and um, not, you know, hiring Black people to uh, predatory lending um, or the disproportionate uh, types of lending um, that damaged uh, Black people from having generational wealth um, here in San Diego, as well as across this nation, um, continues into 2022. Um, I am not, and many of, of our uh, people are not as tolerant um, and when I say tolerant, um, 
we are not going to, you know, sit still. Um, we are not, um, we are peaceful, but we are not silent. Um, and so, um, like many of our ancestors, we choose to speak out and speak out loudly. We choose to boycott and protest and march. Um, and, and those are things that are our right. Um, con people continue to use the Constitution of the United States First Amendment right. Um, and I'm simply saying that I don't believe that the N-word is a, a constitutional right of someone um, to degrade another, um, to say that word in, in front of people from that race um, that dealt with um, uh, mass atrocities um, in this country. Uh, and knowingly, people are saying it knowing that these atrocities happened. Um, there's record, there's data, there's pictures, there's, there's history, they're in history books. Um, so yeah, it is an absolute no for me. I'm upset that uh, uh, council member LeBaron, um, who I am told is outspoken um, at every city council meeting was not outspoken at this particular one with her supporter. Um, I'm upset that, you know, that, that there is a, a Browns Act <laughs> that prevents, um, you know, politicians from speaking during public comment, um, especially when this outlandish language um, is, is being said uh, and tossed around as if it was nothing. Um, that language means something to us and it is harmful. Um, it talks about the, and, and many people who use that language, it is their ancestors who killed, murdered, raped, enslaved, um, brutalized, tortured in a mass number of my ancestors. Um, so, you know, my disclaimer to people is that when you go up to speak and I am in the room, it will be an immediate breach of peace. You know, when I met you for the first time, this was early 2020, um, you were running for mayor of the city of San Diego. It was a different world. You know, this was pre-COVID. This was pre-George Floyd. Um, but your causes were women's rights, tackling racial disparities. How do you view those issues now? And have you seen any positive change in San Diego? Um, I'm still fighting. I'm still fighting those same causes. Um, and, and when we say positive change, I would say we're still dealing with targeted suppression that's disproportionate um, in our communities and to our people. Um, we are still, you know, I'm dealing with women being sexually assaulted at work uh, places where they should be safe. Um, I'm dealing with women uh, and children uh, being solicited for sex by officers. Um, I'm still dealing with things that should not even be um, an issue to have to deal with. Like, let's be clear, like officers should not be soliciting children or women or anyone for sex. And then you have systems who are quick to suppress community members 
but let's investigate first when it comes to their officers. Let's get the facts. Uh, I wish they had been uh, so quick to do that yesterday uh, when they stopped an individual in an illegal stop, but they still arrested him and charged him uh, with, with crimes that he did not commit um, and then had to release him today you still harmed this individual. And so that is, is why it makes, you know, the work that I do uh, so needed. Um, that's why my phone and, and my calendar is booked uh, because these things that I still call them atrocities are happening daily. They are happening daily. And there is absolutely no one who is protecting us from this. The systems that are in place to and designed to protect us are hindered by bureaucracy um, that makes it even more difficult for community members who are laymen and laywomen uh, have a, a, a difficult time understanding the process to get from A to B because it is so overwhelming. It's overwhelming. You can take my legal money and then I gotta fight you in a court process to get my legal money that you took back. You harm me at work and I gotta go get a, a, a attorney to do a mediation to fight because you harmed me at work. And then I gotta be worried about if it gets out or, or how people are gonna look at me or you know the, the looks that I get as people drive by while I'm handcuffed and have done nothing wrong. But officers, media is afraid to put their image on, on the screens in, in news articles or say their names, but they don't do that for community members. There's no fear for community members. But when it's an officer who's soliciting 15-year-old boys caught on video, it's a pause. If you're going to shame us, shame them too. Yeah, I know that you've been an outspoken um critic, obviously, of, of police brutality and, um, you know, a supporter of police reform. What are some changes you would like to see um, at the local level here? So, I mean, we could start that um, if an officer is arrested, like um, Officer Morales was with SDPD for domestic violence, I don't believe um, just because it's a misdemeanor, that officer should keep his job. But in San Diego County in California, if officers are arrested for misdemeanors uh, for things that are violent, like domestic violence, uh, they still get to work. We have a number of officers who have criminal charges still working uh, as law enforcement. Um, and, and so I think that there's a standard that is not being upheld for officers. I think that de-escalation in the event of, of Dr. Lee, um, who was killed downtown in Little Italy, why didn't they wait longer? Why didn't they pull back? Because de-escalation not only would have saved her life, but it would have prevented officers from being injured. You know, they, they don't do these same things when it comes to, you know, I look at how long it took them before they entered the home of the gentleman who was shooting uh, his rifle in his garage in a white affluent neighborhood. They waited. They backed everybody up, got everybody out, made sure he was in the home by himself, which Dr. Lee was in her home by herself too. She wasn't threatening anyone. She didn't threaten that officer. She didn't threaten uh, to harm herself. She was no threat to anyone. Why not wait? Why enter her home, one, without a warrant? 
Why, why continue uh, uh, down this line for something that was a misdemeanor citation for her displaying the weapon in front of the police officer? Maybe it was definitely a citation. Why are we going through all these motions for an arrest of someone who clearly doesn't speak fluent English so there is an interpretation gap between the officer and her? It, there clearly is is something that is is going on with mental health. Why not wait to get information from Pert? Why not pull back? Uh, they continue to tell us they're going to do these things. We continue to get laws like AB three nine two and SB fourteen twenty one. We get laws about our different things, um, but these laws have not stopped law enforcement departments from being corrupt. It has not stopped law enforcement departments from editing video so that they look good and the other person doesn't. It, they didn't, why don't they put in the video what they should have done so that the public would know? Why didn't they put in the video that we didn't have a warrant? That this is displaying her weapon to a, to a law enforcement officer is a misdemeanor but you put in, in the video and show her uh, being hugely upset about, you know, why, what are you doing? I don't open my door because I don't know who's here. I don't know who I'm opening my door to. Give yeah. her the eviction notice and walk away. Back up. Yeah. This was too much. It, the intent to, the, the intent to, you can't disrespect me attitude. That's, that's, that's where officers come from. They have this attitude of, if you disrespect me, I'm coming for you. And it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. And so for me, it's like saying, if you, if you continue down this path, eventually there's going to be an uprising because people are going to be tired of being slaughtered when they could have been saved. De-escalation was created on this premise that it would save lives. It would save lives. But officers who do not use it are taking lives. So I, I, I just, we, we, need, we need clear changes, but when we make changes with law, then we need someone to have oversight over that. When officers don't abide by the assembly bills or the Senate bills or any other laws, there needs to be a, a, a commission or something within the assembly, within the Senate um, or whoever else, I'm sorry about that, um, or whoever else is creating these laws uh, to, to make sure that they're upholding like what they're supposed to do in the laws. And that's not happening. They're creating these laws and bills. And then they're just saying, okay, we created it and that's it, we're done. Um, and they're walking away and then there's no oversight. And if we're asking for oversight from commissions that are funded by city government that is huge supporters of law enforcement, it's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. They don't see us as human beings. They don't see us as human beings. Yeah, good points and uh, definitely good questions you raised. I know that there are some hangups here locally uh, with oversight boards, 
we're supposed to have. But I do want to shift the conversation to just ask about you. I think that so much of the work you do is looking out for other people, which you've illustrated well already in this conversation. But I mean, who is Tasha Williamson? How did you get your start, um, you know, standing up for people and, and being an activist? It started with my own children. Um, you know, my um, I'm Black. My children are Black. We look Black because like, we are. And um, it started with my children attending school um, and having to deal with racism in an institution of learning um, here in San Diego. Um, my daughter uh, was, everybody has scholastic books. Um, my daughter was in elementary school and some people spend money, a lot, a lot of money on clothes and a lot of money on shoes and you know materialistic things. Well, every time she got the scholastic book that would come out, I believe it was like every other month, I would spend $100 purchasing books because I've always wanted to have a home that had like its own library. So my kids had their library of books in their room. Um, I think it is very valuable um, to be able to read uh, what you love and then also you know, things that you don't like learning about other things, differences in history. And, you know, sometimes you can't travel to a place, but if you read about it, it's almost like being there. Right. Um, and so that's what I was taught as an early age. I began reading at the age of six. Um, I was reading newspapers and um, that's how it kind of started. We read books and then um, every morning my parents uh, would have us uh, read a newspaper. They were huge on education <laughs> so we love to hear I, it <laughs> not so much I, I was like once I'm out of high school I'm like free <laughs> but I think that everybody should uh, do what they love go to college have a career um it, it was just my parents were very strict um you had to know how to read write do math you had to know history um things of those sorts and so um you know a part of that I I you know, transferred over to my children and raising them, books were very important. So um, this uh, teacher, um, my daughter was one of two Blacks in her classroom. Um, there were uh, professionals, um, mothers who stayed at home, mothers and fathers who worked. There were dual parents, single parents, um, predominantly white um, uh, children were in this room. It's a white teacher. Um, and one day she says to my daughter, your mother must really love you because she buys you all these books. Um, and my daughter comes home and, and says, you know, she tells the story, but like a child, right? Because she doesn't really understand. And then, you know, you start to see other biases about, um, you know, she makes a comment about my daughter watching TV. Well, my daughter can't watch TV except on the weekends. So it was it was confusing why she was making comments of such to my daughter that seemed to be uh, from a biased perspective. So we finally have a, 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 a meeting um, that was called by this uh, teacher because my daughter really didn't like school. So if we're gonna be honest, she didn't like school. My daughter dropped out of school when she was uh, 15 years old. Um, she went to uh, college, got straight A's. <laughs> <laughs> she graduated, uh, got her uh, uh, equivalency. Um, and, uh, but during that time she was going to college, she made straight A's and the colleges told her she had to be a certain age to go to the school. She could only take a certain amount of courses. She loved college. 
Um, and so she wound up getting her equivalency and she's now um, a fashion designer. Uh, so, so for me, it is um, difficult for her to have experienced racism at school. My daughter had a cell phone um, when she was in elementary school because at that time there were um, school shootings and I wanted all my kids had phones and because I felt like it's important for my kids to be able to uh, you know, communicate if something happens on school and so that we could get to them. Uh, she made a comment about uh, my daughter's phone being better than hers. Um, it, it was just different things. And then this led to us having a, a full meeting with a psychologist, a nurse, a principal, her. Um, and in the meeting, she's telling me that my daughter's not learning. Uh, my daughter's not doing what she needs to do. Uh, my daughter has probably watches too much TV or plays video games. Um, and unfortunately she didn't know me well, but I thought she did because I spent a lot of money on books. My daughter did not have any video games. She did not watch TV regularly. Um, my daughter actually played outside um, and, and did her homework. So I then began to tell her, why aren't you reporting this in her weekly reports, which you provide to me? And I brought there a stack that say, hey, Ajane is doing really great. Ajane had a good day today, Ajane. Um, and so I said, you know, this, this is not okay. Um, she started feeling uncomfortable about um, the treatment of this teacher. So my husband at the time was showing up uh, to the campus. He was told that, uh, uh, we were told that we could only show up with an appointment, um, that we had to sign in. Um, and my husband went uh, to the campus one day and noticed that white parents were just walking on campus. They had no, they did not have to sign in and they did not um, have to make appointments. And he made a comment um, that the, the staff needs to go back and get the parents who walked past and make them sign in. One of the parents said, I've never had to sign in um, to this school. Um, and so we wound up uh, taking it to the press. We wound up filing a suit um, and uh, having my daughter removed from that class. Uh, so uh, these are, are some of the things that, now my daughter is now 20, 25 years old, um, but her first experience of racism was at a school of learning. Um, my son uh, attended, we had two federal suits uh, that happened at the same time. My son was in ninth grade. He had been um, an A student uh, all his elementary school um, and junior high school uh, time. And he was having a difficult time in ninth grade. Um, there was no resources available at Sarah High School uh, for him to be able to catch up. And we're six weeks um, into, I'm sorry, we're three weeks into the school and they're telling us, oh, we won't have tutoring for six weeks. And I said, so how does he catch up from, you know, six weeks of what he didn't, he didn't do well on <laughs> if, you know, if you're not doing tutoring for six weeks um, into school. Uh, and then they, my son wanted to attend Harvard and Yale um, University. He is, you know, was doing well. He was top, one of the top of his class. Um, high school shifted that for him. Um, ninth grade was a shift. My son became depressed, uh, did not like school, uh, and his grades declined. He didn't know, here's a kid who's been an A student, um, and he didn't know how to turn back um, from failing. Um, he had never failed in anything. And unfortunately, as a parent, um, you know, I never taught my son 
how to pick himself up after failing because he had never failed. Um, and he, you know, he was well liked, still is. And, um, you know, teachers always had something positive to say about him. He was, you know, very well versed in things, um, in intellectual speaking, um, just really good. So this was hard for him. He never got to see the dream of Harvard or Yale. Um, you know, but that didn't stop him. He is, you know, now a businessman um, making almost six figures and, and doing well. Um, but he had to learn about um, the disproportionate treatment of Black students in, in high school at Sarah High School. Um, we did uh, follow suit uh, once <laughs> the counselor said, oh, well, you know, you can still send your son uh, to Harvard. You would just have to pay. Um, you know, the the treatment and the lack of care that um, people in learning institutions showed uh, my children um, was hurtful. It was hurtful. Um, and my I did not provide my children with a bias that I had of, of uh, schools because I wanted them to create their own experiences uh, on their own. And so unfortunately, this was something that was taught to to them uh, by, by uh, schools of, uh, that they attended. I'm sorry to hear about that experience. That's so disappointing, but it is really inspiring that you chose to fight back and not just that once, but you know, for the, for the rest of your life, sort of making it into a career. Um, what have been, been, what have been your biggest wins, um, you know, in the, in the fights that you've taken up and, and what are some things that you would still like to accomplish? Yeah. Biggest wins, let's see. Um, I was able to, from the fight with my, from my children, we were able to actually negotiate. We um, went into mediation and we able to negotiated uh, my children being able to go to any school they wanted to. And so they were able, we, we all chose uh, Southeastern San Diego schools. Um, my children had gone to schools that were predominantly uh, in affluent white neighborhoods. Um, and so this was a different experience. My children um, were able to actually see people um, who were in leadership, who were teaching, um, and who were students um, actually uh, at those schools. And so, um, you know, for me, that was a success. My kids got to see people who looked like them um, and, and be around people who looked like them, who loved them, um, and treated them uh, with a balance. Um, of nurturing and, and respect and care. Um, the other successes would be uh, Earl McNeil, um, when uh, the national city government and national city police were telling the public uh, and media uh, that they had absolutely, and the sheriff's department, that they had absolutely done nothing um, to Earl McNeil. Um, when uh, we protested for 180 plus days, uh, and found out that uh, they had actually lied to everyone uh, and that they had suffocated and murdered Earl McNeil uh, when the medical examiner's report was finally released. And so, uh, and we found out also through the ambulance report, uh, which the aunt, um, Tammy McNeil, received. Uh, so I think that was um, kind of the first push of um, activism, um, at a, at a local level and not just a personal level, um, but we've also had successes in the work um, of um, uh, support from Project Safeway uh, when we started in 2007, 
of um, making uh, the neighborhoods of Southeastern safer, uh, and making sure that kids could walk to and from school. Uh, and it was a group of community members um, that came together uh, alongside organizations to um, push uh, to make sure that we patrolled the neighborhood uh, with our kids and our students to make sure that they were safe in that neighborhood. Um, and then you have San Diego Compassion Project, where we respond to violence um, in communities across the county, uh, alongside uh, a collaboration of organizations uh, like ACE and UPAC, um, who um, respond and support families uh, who've lost loved ones uh, to violence uh, and had violent injuries happen to themselves. So uh, a number of successes we can go on with. Um, the fact that I just started uh, a nonprofit called Exhaling Injustice after doing all of this work for free. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we will now be uh, working on, uh, we're procuring our first grant here, hopefully uh, within the next week. Um, and we will be um, launching our uh, website and donation uh, pages uh, online uh, within uh, the month of April. Awesome. So we're excited to push for police accountability um, to ensure that people that are experiencing injustices know that exhaling injustice um, is here to fight for them, uh, to get resources and supports to elevate their voices um, and make sure uh, that the community knows that um, they're hurting and that they need support. Uh, and, and so that we'll be here uh, teaching our youth um, to know their rights um, so that when they are stopped by police um, and when injustices happen to them on schools, campuses, uh, or by uh, officials who are supposed to protect them, um, that they also have a voice. Uh, and so we will be uh, teaching uh, youth with youth, um, organizing, uh, know your rights um, and know, knowing their resources. Um, so they know where they can go to get support. Um, so they are not alone uh, in this uh, city um, as well. Awesome. Well, big congratulations on thank that step. Um, thank you, Tasha, for spending time with me and, and sharing some of your story. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks again for Tasha Williamson for joining me on the San Diego News Fix, and thank you for listening. If there's someone that you would like to hear more about, please get in touch. I'm at christy.totten at sduniontribune.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>